Have you ever wondered why you're not making a podcast? Maybe because you think it's too hard. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I mean, you're immediately in the podcast game. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So right now, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Just go to A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M and join me on Anchor. Broadcasting from the heart of Cascadia and the edge of the world, welcome to Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. Thank you for listening to this bonus series. Tonight, I'm joined by co-host Tim Rothschild for a conversation with noted researcher of parapsychology, Rupert Sheldrake, on his concept of morphic resonance in front of a Facebook Live audience hosted by our friends at Evolve and Ascent. That's now on this edition of our bonus series, Night Drift. My co-host today is Tim Rothschild, a non-dual Kabbalistic healer, philosopher, and numerologist. Uh, A note, Jennifer Sodini will not be able to join us uh, this time, as she is currently in Roswell, New Mexico, exploring its strange history and terrain, which doesn't happen to have much Wi-Fi. (laughs) But our guest today is Rupert Sheldrake, PhD. Rupert is a biologist and author best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance. Professor, thank you so much for joining us on Night Drift. Good to be with you, Jim. Professor, if you will, please indulge us right away. Can you describe your journey to morphic resonance? All right. Um, Well, as a child, I was very interested in biology. I kept lots of pet animals. I collected plants. My father was a herbalist and a pharmacist. And so I, I had a good background from my father in biology. Um, I wanted to study biology, which I did. Um, But as I studied at school and at university at Cambridge, um, it struck me that the first thing we did with what we were studying was to kill it. All the animals and plants we studied were dead. We killed them and then cut them up. And the things that fascinated me most about life just disappeared. For example, as a child, I used to keep homing pigeons and I was fascinated by how they find their way home and I still am and this is still a great mystery but 
cutting up pigeons and isolating enzymes or DNA from their liver and then uh, studying it in test tubes doesn't tell you very much about their interesting homing behavior. Right. Um, so I, by the time I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, I felt that biology was sort of too narrowly focused on this sort of mechanistic biochemical level. Um, and I became very disenchanted with it, and, and I wanted to step back and get a bigger picture. So I was lucky to have a year at Harvard in the graduate school where I did philosophy and history of science, and that did give me a bigger picture. And I realized that the current mechanistic materialist worldview is really a paradigm. It's a model, and these models in science can change. They're not permanent truths, which I assumed it was to start with. Mm. Um, and then as I, was, I went back to Cambridge, I did research on plant development, and I was working on the hormone auxin. It's a plant hormone. Um, and I discovered quite a lot. I enjoyed the research. But then I realized that however much we study the molecular details, um, something about plant form is always elusive. The same hormone is present in roses and cabbages and palm trees and, and, uh, and peanuts. And yet they all have different shapes. Um, something else seemed to be involved, and I got interested in the concept of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, an idea introduced into developmental biology in the 1920s. Um, so I got interested in these fields. I, became, I came to the conclusion we need something like this in biology, hmm. but nobody knew what they were or how they were inherited. And while I was thinking about the inheritance of these patterns in animals and plants, um, I read a book by uh, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, about memory, uh, which said that, was, uh, that in our own case, uh, memories might just travel directly across time, not be embodied in physical uh, substances. Oh, wow. That gave me the idea that there could be another kind of inheritance based on the inheritance of memory. And um, I then had a sudden, sudden flash of insight. This was a long time ago, in 1973. I was a, a fellow of Clare College, Cambridge. I was director of studies in biochemistry. You know, I was, had an academic post. I was doing research in regular university. Um, and then I had this idea of morphic resonance, and it changed my worldview. It was a kind of, for several days, I was in a state of extreme excitement because I could see how everything could be interpreted differently. And a whole shift in paradigm was happening in my mind. Oh, wow. But it didn't prove very easy to share this with my colleagues in Cambridge, especially in the biochemistry department where I was working. Um, and I realized I'd have to spend a lot more time thinking this through before I published it. Um, I then took a job in an international agricultural institute in India working on improving crops. Um, and finally got to the point where I felt I could write it up. And so my first book on the subject uh, came out in 1981 called A New Science of Life. And that was where I first put forward the idea of morphic resonance. And of course, I've been interested in that uh, ever since. Um, and, but I've also broadened out my areas of research uh, into, sure. to cover a number of other unexplained phenomena. Yeah, sure. And what, what was it specifically in the late 70s, early 80s, 
about traditional science and what it couldn't achieve that really influenced you to write a new science of life at that time? Well, what influenced me was that it couldn't, that it couldn't understand how organisms produce their forms, why a rose is a rose and a cabbage is a cabbage. Right. Um, it didn't explain form and still doesn't. Same is true in embryology in animals. Um, it's a great mystery still how an organism develops from a fertilized egg with very little structure mm. into a complex organism like your cat. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, these, these things are mysteries still. Um, DNA, the conventional theory that it's all in the genes, doesn't really explain it because DNA codes for the sequence of amino acids and proteins. That's what it does. It doesn't program the shape of your cat's face um, or its mouse hunting instincts. Um, these are, there's a great deal of inheritance that genes don't explain. And um, so when I thought of the idea of morphic resonance and morphic fields, um, this seemed to me to provide a way of understanding a lot of inheritance um, and the development of form in animals and plants and the inheritance of instincts, a kind of collective memory in a new way. And conventional biology could not explain them and still can't explain them, um, which is why um, I'm more convinced than ever that we need something like morphic resonance to um, understand the phenomena of life and indeed the phenomena of chemistry as well. And so this kind of broke open, like you said, a whole new paradigm. You're very excited about it because it informed all different fields, including, I think, you know, after, after your initial book, you had a second book, Presence of the Past. Yes. And this is when it sort of started to evolve into even more fields that you understood could be informed by this revelation, right? That's right. Well, the presence of the past, I took the ideas further, uh, applying them to memory, the idea that memories are not stored inside our brains, which is the conventional view. Um, uh, but rather, we resonate with ourselves in the past. There's a resonance across time. And we resonate with lots of other people too, which is why you have collective memory, which Jung called the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, so this led me into thinking of experiments and testing morphic resonance, and I did quite a number of experiments, which are summarized in the latest edition of A New Science of Life, which came out a few years ago with an update, which in the United States has been retitled Morphic Resonance. Um, so that is an area that opened up a whole new research agenda. Um, and while I was working on things like morphic resonance and uh, its effects in social groups, I realized that it predicted a number of phenomena uh, which already exist. One of them is telepathy. Um, from the basis, on the basis of this theory, um, I came to the conclusion that telepathy would be a normal means of communication within animal groups. Um, not, I got interested in through animals first, not through people. Um, and that led me into one whole line of research into telepathy, which I'm still doing. Um, and then the more I thought about things, the more I realized that there are 
lots of unsolved problems in biology which are not part of the standard research agenda because they go beyond the materialist worldview. Um, and I wrote a book called Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, uh, showing how simple experiments could lead to paradigm-shattering consequences. Um, the reason I wrote um, about simple experiments is because it's hard to get re research funding for unconventional science. Sure. So I tried to develop experiments that could shatter the current paradigm, open up whole new perspectives that could be done on budgets of $10 or less uh, so that uh, you could do them without a grant. And um, uh, that, that opened up a whole new set of research lines, for example, onto dogs and cats that know when their owners are coming home, telephone telepathy, um, the, uh, how pigeons find their way home, um, a whole range of phenomena, biological and social phenomena, that are not uh, much researched and certainly not explained. So that's led me into the sense that there's a huge amount science hasn't tackled. It's just ignored it. It's like focused on a few well-researched topics. Then it's like big cities where a lot of science happens. Then it's sort of you get the suburbs of science and that sort of fades out. And then there's mm. huge amounts of uncharted territory. Um, and people are kept within the silos of conventional science by a set of dogmatic assumptions. And those are ones that I question and discuss in my book science set free which you may have seen it's about the 10 dogmas of materialism yeah and with a new edition in the uk called the science delusion correct that's right the book's called the science delusion in the uk the new edition is out here in the uk it's not out in the us so anyone who wants it have to import it from england Fantastic. You know, I feel like there's so many of these experiments that we could dig into and, and just sort of endless be, endlessly be fascinated by, Professor. But perhaps we, can perhaps we can start with animals, because it's a topic that seems to gravitate into our conversations on this interview series nearly every episode. So <laughs> if you will, can you illustrate for us, you know, how animals may reveal clues about our true state of consciousness? Well, um, there's a lot of things I could say in response to that. I think one of the things that animals do is reveal to us that psychic abilities like telepathy and premonition um, are actually thoroughly biological, thoroughly normal. They're often called paranormal, uh, which means beyond the normal. I don't think they're paranormal at all. I think they're totally normal. Um, and uh, they sometimes people think of them as supernatural. I don't think they're supernatural. I think they're totally natural. Um, and I think that animals within animal groups have a kind of telepathic communication with each other. Uh, when you see flocks of birds that change direction without bumping into each other, there's a kind of field of the whole flock into which they're all tuned and which is coordinating their movements. And I call that the social field. And when animals are part of a social field, um, when they form bonds within a group and they move apart, they remain connected through that field. And I think that it's a bit like quantum entanglement or quantum non-locality, when mm -hmm. particles in quantum physics have been part of the same system. When they move apart, mm -hmm. they remain interconnected at a distance. Um, that's called entanglement. 
And when animals like wolves have been part of a social group, and then the adult wolves go out hunting to get food to feed the babies that they leave at home with a babysitter, um, I think that this these social bonds stretch and uh, form uh, through morphic fields a channel of communication. Now, I think that when we adopt animals as members of our families, cats, dogs, horses, parrots, and other animals, then they form bonds to us. And they, these telepathic abilities uh, enable them to respond to our thoughts and intentions. And that's why um, I started doing research on these things with animals, because when you do it with people, um, people always say, oh, well, they're just frauds, they're cheating, etc. Animals have no motive to cheat. And moreover, <laughs> they're, better, they're, they're better at it than, than humans. Um, sure. So I started collecting stories uh, about uh, people's stories about their cats, dogs, and other animals realized there were a whole series of categories of behavior. Um, and, uh, for example, a lot of cat owners told me that their cat always knows when they're planning to take it to the vet, and the cat will hide, because most cats don't like going to the vet. <laughs> um, I've got more than 100 stories of that kind on my database. So my assistants and I thought we'd check this out. So we rang up all the vets in the North London Yellow Pages, um, at 65 clinics, I'd asked them if they ever had a problem with people missing appointments with their cats. 64 out of 65 said, yes, it happens all the time. And the remaining one said, we've given up the appointment system because it happens so often. People have to turn up with their animal. Um, so that's one example. And I think the cat's picking it up telepathically because some people find that uh, it's so annoying when the cat disappears. Some people ring the vet to make the appointment from work so the cat can't overhear the conversation <laughs> and then swing by to pick up the cat and it's still not there it's still, it's still hiding um but the phenomenon that um is easiest to study is uh, dogs and cats that know when their owners are coming home many dogs and cats anticipate their owners arrival and go and wait at a door or a window um and <clears throat> Surveys in Britain and America showed that about 50% of dog owners have noticed this behavior and about 30% of cat owners. Um, and the skeptics say, oh, well, this is just co coincidence or they just go to the window more and more when their owner's out because they want them to come back and so they're there more when they're on the way home. Um, or they're just picking up clues from people at home or it's routine, or they hear familiar car engines. These were all the standard objections, which are reasonable enough, but no one had ever tested them. So we set up a whole series of experiments where we filmed the place the dog waits while the owner's out. The whole time they're out, we're filming the dog. So we know that it's, we know exactly when they go to wait at the door or window. It's objectively there on, on film. Um, and we have people go at least five miles away. Um, they come home at randomly chosen times. We randomly choose the time and call them on a mobile phone to tell them when to go home. So they don't know in advance. And to avoid familiar car sounds and smells, they go by taxi, a different taxi each time. So uh, there's no familiar sounds and smells. No one at home knows when they're coming. 
and it's a routine, non-routine time, um, and we've got it all on film. And over and over again, uh, the dog goes and starts waiting at the window uh, when the person forms the intention to come home. For example, if they call for a taxi, that's when the dog starts waiting, uh, even before they get into the taxi. Um, and we've got hundreds of experiments like this with dogs. Uh, no one's yet filmed experiments with cats, so if there's anyone out there who wants a good student project, this would be a great way, a great thing to do, and I'd be happy to advise anyone who wants to take up this research. Um, and um, this is all published in peer-reviewed journals, scientific journals with all the statistical analysis, and also summarized in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, uh, and Other Unexplained Powers of Animals. So um, there's an example of something that we can learn from animals. They're telepathic. We can learn something about the way it works. They're much more sensitive than humans. They're also more sensitive to premonitions. And I've done a study on animals that anticipate earthquakes and tsunamis. And over and over again, animals seem to anticipate earthquakes and tsunamis several days in advance sometimes, at least several hours. Now, no one has a clue how they do it. Um, and it's not just picking up vibrations in the ground, which seismologists can also pick up with their devices, but they can't predict earthquakes. Um, um, it also, they also give warnings of unpredictable disasters like bombing raids during the Second World War and um, man-made disasters. Um, so I think animals can teach us a great deal about latent powers that we also have, but we live in a society which denies the existence of these powers, even though most people have experienced them. Um, and uh, we have an academic system which is in complete denial about their existence, you know, pretending they're impossible or there's no evidence and so on. The so-called skeptics have a, a few talking points, and one of them is there's no evidence, another is they're impossible, and so on. <laughs> another is that these are delusions that people have about their pets, they're doting on their pets and so forth. But these are all attempts to deny phenomena that don't fit into the contemporary materialist worldview. Yet most pet owners have experienced some of these phenomena for themselves, and there's millions of dogs and cats in the United States right now anticipating the arrival of their owners on a daily basis. So we're not talking about something that's paranormal, weird, uh, you know, totally exceptional. We're talking about something that's completely normal in millions of households all over the world. Life as it is. And so the, the piece of this that lights me up, it, it attracts me the most, is that moment when uh, other organisms or some other intelligence is picking up on our intention. I find that to be the most fascinating piece of that experiment because I think the implications of that can be unpacked in a myriad of different directions. Um, have you found the same, that, you know, that sort of intentionality and how uh, reality responds to that, whether it's an entanglement thing or more of a, a mystical knowing of direct experience? You know, how, have you, how have you worked with that? And is there any practical application that you found that you're excited about? Well, the, 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 the easiest to investigate for in the human realm from this is, is telephone telepathy. Now, um, about more than 80% of the population have had the experience of thinking of someone who then calls and then 
they say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. Or when the, call, when the phone rings, just knowing who it is before they look at caller ID or answer the phone. Now, I've done a lot of experiments with that, uh, published in peer-reviewed journals, summarised in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, um, which show this is real. If it, in my experiments, the subject has four potential callers, people they know well, we film them, they're on a landline with no caller ID, no smartphone and, and no um, computer link during the experiment. We pick one of the four callers at random, ring them up and ask them to call their friend. When the phone rings, they're being filmed. They have to say who they think it is before they pick up the phone. I think it's John, they pick it up, hi John, they're right or they're wrong. Um, by chance, they'd be right one in four, 25%. In our experiments, they're right over 40%, 45% on average in filmed experiments. is massively significant statistically. Wow. Um, so now what's this got to do with intention? Well, when you, if I were going to call you, uh, Tim, then I would, I'd think about you first. You know, I'd think I need to call Tim about something and I'd think about you, I'd get my phone out, I'd, look up your number, I'd scroll through, press the button and dial you. All that time I'm thinking about you. Now, you might pick up my intention and start thinking about me. You might start thinking, oh, I wonder how Rupert is or what's Rupert doing. Then the phone rings and you say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. I think in this very common experience, which I'm sure most people listening to us now will have experienced. And if they haven't, if they talk to their friends or family members, they'll certainly find people who say, yes, this happens to me all the time. Um, I think what's happening there is picking up the intention. The intention reaches out um, to the person who's, uh, who you're thinking about. They can pick it up. And this becomes a common everyday experience, not paranormal, but normal, uh, picking up intention. So I think that's what telephone telepathy is about. Mm -hmm. uh, that suggests that our intentions can affect other people at a distance. And I think that when people form intentions, you know, for example, in positive thinking, the power of thought, or in prayer, where you're forming intentions, say an intention for someone to be healed. And um, in prayer, you're bringing in a spiritual realm first. All prayers start with an invocation to God or to a saint or an angel or a spiritual being. Um, you're then forming an intention. You're praying for something in petitionary prayer. And uh, that intention... Um, I think reaches that person and can act as a kind of channel through which the healing energy can flow. So I think intentions do have uh, many effects, but the most measurable ones are in telephone telepathy. And there's now really good evidence that this phenomenon really happens. And indeed, I'd like to invite people listening to this to check it out for themselves. I now have an online telephone telepathy test that works on cell phones. Oh, that's great. On my website, sheldrake.org, there's a section that says take part. And there there's the telephone telepathy test. Um, you, you register through the website. You put on the names of two people. In this case, there are only two other callers, who people you know well. Telepathy works between people who know each other well. Um, put in two people's uh, names and phone numbers. 
And then uh, the com- everyone is just sort of doing their normal thing, and the computer then picks one of the two people at random. Say, um, I was the subject, and you, Jim, were one of the callers, and Tim was the other. Um, what would happen then is the computer might pick you at random, your cell phone would ring, caller ID would say telephone telepathy test, then you answer it, it says, this is Rupert Sheldrake's telephone telepathy test. Um, um, please think about Rupert now. And when you're ready, press 1. So you press 1. Then it dials me. My phone rings. It says telephone telepathy test. I answer it, it says, this is your telephone telepathy test. Um, one of your callers is on the line waiting to speak to you right now. Um, press 1 for Jim, press 2 for Tim. So you can guess who you think it is. So if I press one for Jim, uh, I'd be right. If I press two for Tim, I'd be wrong. And as soon as I pressed it, the line opens up. So I get instant feedback as to, and and then if it was you, we could chat for up to a minute. Then it cuts off because I'm paying for the call. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there. And then after a random time delay, it does it again. And, and after you've done six trials, everyone involved gets a text message telling them the score. Three, three out of six is the chance level. Um, and um, what I'm looking for at the moment, and again, if anyone listening is interested in this, is I'm trying to find people who, through practice, can get better at this. The, these telepathy tests are very artificial and people become self-conscious. And as soon as you start thinking about it, you know, the mind gets in the way. Oh, it was Jim, it was Jim last time, so it must be Tim this time. And so I'll say Tim. If, if, you, if that happens, you've lost it. Your results drop to chance levels. But if you can go with your feelings and allow the feelings to be what matters, not the thinking, um, then the results are much better. We're looking for people who can find ways of getting better at telephone telepathy and preferably training methods that they can share with others. And this would really push this research forward. And um, that's, as I say, that's my current state of this research. I'm really keen for people to do it. We know that if people just do the test, the scores come out on average above chance and statistically significant. But what we don't know is how to train people to get better at it. Hmm. And if people can get better at it, then there's the possibility of telepathy competitions. Um, uh, who's the most telepathic person in America? Um, and with you know, people could do the tests online, and then we'd select the ones who are doing best, and the finals could be in a TV studio, you know, live on air. It would be great television. Um, then there'd be a prize for the most telepathic person in America. And then if that worked, other countries would do the same. And then a few years down the line, we could have the telepathy Olympics. And uh, um, then if there was a telepathy Olympics, where people able to train on their smartphones on telephone telepathy tests, uh, a lot of people would want to improve their intuitive abilities if they could. Um, If there were prizes and rewards for this, um, then this could become a major social phenomenon. Then the question, does telepathy exist, would cease to be a question. Of course it exists. That's what most people think. The skeptics would still be there, but they'd become like the Flat Earth Society, you know, just a tiny fringe group of cranks with a dogmatic belief system, which is what, in fact, they are. But right now they pretend 
that they speak for the scientific mainstream, which they don't. Anyway, anyone who's listening who uh, has had this experience and would like to try it, please get, try it out. And if you can uh, do it repeatedly and get better at it, let me know. You can email me through my website, sheldrake.org. Well, I'll tell you right now, Professor, I am going to do that myself because <laughs> as a child, I would, I would be remiss to not share this anecdote with you. As a child, and my listeners know this story well, you know, I came from a household where my mom routinely, every day, sometimes multiple times a day, would go to the phone, pick it up and answer it before it rang and say, hi, mom vice versa, my grandmother the same. And it would happen every day to the point where it wasn't even weird. It wasn't strange. It wasn't anomalous. It was as natural as natural can be. And so I am for sure going to go on your website and try my medals at that because I think I've inherited a, a closer capacity to being able to be the best psychic in the world, if that's a determination. Great. That would be fantastic, Jim, if you can do that. Please do. do. I'm feeling pretty competitive with Jim too, because this All is, right. I, do, I do this for a living. So we got to see, cause Jim's got the natural thing, you know, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. We'll be right back with more here on Night Drift presented by Euphemed. Follow Euphemed on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. the heart of Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphemet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. One of the interesting things that I've found in, in my work has been that a lot of people dismiss this because it comes so naturally. It's almost like it's, it's all right here. You know, these, these natural talents or these gifts, but it's really, it's how we're made. We're made to do this. And so I think there's something about that, that I think would be so exciting if we got enough people to, to do this experiment. How many, uh, how's it going so far? How many are you looking to get? And uh, what are you, what are your real hopes uh, besides the Olympics, which I think is a true vision that I'd like to support anyway? Well, we've had hundreds of people have done these, uh, this new version, the, the online telephone test, the results uh, the chance level is 50%. The results aren't very impressive at the moment, about 55%. With large numbers of people, it's pretty. It's statistically very significant. Um, but that's, some people are much better than others, and some people are not. Some people are just at chance level. But to move this thing forward, that's why we need a training method where people can get better at it, and where people, you know, like it, it, these tests, it's like saying to people, have you got perfect pitch and testing random people? And occasionally you'd find someone who has, but if you can train to do it, you'd find people are better at it. Or, you know, if you say, can you swim? If you took a whole lot of people who'd never been taught and never practiced, some might be able to swim a bit, but not very well. But people who've practiced would be much more impressive for studying swimming. So people who've practiced doing these tests, who've achieved a better level, would, would make this research much easier to do than with people who've never done them before and who are very inexperienced. You can absolutely practice with this sort of thing. And uh, in the first year of the four-year program I teach, which is all about awakening to this kind of subtle level of reality, which at some point becomes not so subtle, we keep a psychic diary and we make a list of you know, spontaneous events that happen, dreams that seem to come true, uh, thoughts that just 
show up out of nowhere that, that, that inform you in a, in a powerful way, psychic phone calls, all that kind of stuff. We just keep a list. And I say, walk around for a couple months with this. Just let this be your intention to just notice these sorts of things. And over time, you find that people are so surprised by just how much they're able to pick up on if they set that intention and then actually stick with it. It's, just, it's a muscle, but it's like a consciousness muscle. And eventually it filters into the entire system. The whole body becomes awake and these split off parts, they all start to integrate in a certain way because they need to be present in order to be awake to this level of reality. But it's very real. And I, I, the reason why I'm enjoying speaking with you about this is because your life journey kind of puts you in this really interesting position to bridge the gap between science and spirituality in your own unique way. So I come from just the practical guy. I'm just, I learned how to do this. I can work with it. I, I put the key in the car. It drives. I have no idea about the, the engine, but uh, you're doing that. And so I just, uh, I want to just keep saying, keep going. I love it. Well, I'm so glad to hear you're doing this with, with a group of people uh, because you know, if you and your group could take up this research, um, you know, and if others in the group could try it, and if you could find ways of getting it, making it work better. And of course, this, this test that I've got is, is an objective test. This is an objective statistical test. So people before they've done your course, if they did the telephone telepathy test and scored at or just above chance, and after they've done your course, if they were scoring you know, consistently really highly, this would be actual objective proof that the method works. That, and it wouldn't just be, oh, I feel more integrated or, you know, the world seems better, a better place to live or anything like that, which could be dismissed as subjective feelings. These would be objective facts. Um, so that, I don't, do you do hands-on type healing as well, um, body work and so on? You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a part of what we do directly. The, the majority of this is actually we work directly with consciousness itself. I so, um, you know, believe it or not, that's, you know, that's possible. So it becomes more of a shamanistic bent, but it's integrated with the psychological, which is where a lot of your work comes in because that's, that's kind of where it's headed. You know, the truth yes. of that, you know, yeah, that synergy there. So, I'm, you know, I'm a student of Jason Shulman and the school is a society of souls. So just to put that up, yeah. I'd, I'd love to ask you, Professor, I'd love to ask you this, you know, just as, for example, panpsychism, one of our oldest theories, yet a victim of empirical science. You know, there was a time and place where spirit and science were both functioning and, and working together. What has been your relationship with spirituality during the course of your career? And how, you know, has that influenced your work? Well, the first, uh, when I was at school, aged about 14, my science teachers um, more or less indoctrinated, indoctrinated me with the kind of materialist, atheist worldview. And from their point of view, science equals materialism and atheism. Uh, religion equals credulity, uh, people who've been indoctrinated by priests, um, uh, and people who are feeble-minded or just superstitious. Um, and so I was converted to standard atheist, scientific atheism point of view, which I remained in that way of thinking for you know quite a long time, in, into my 20s. Um, and what jolted me out of it? Were, well, first of all, I became increasingly disenchanted with mechanistic materialism as a theory of life, as I mentioned earlier. So I began to doubt the science 
behind this atheist worldview. I just thought it was too narrow and too dogmatic. Uh, but I didn't question the atheism. Um, then I, I suppose what really jolted me out of it more than anything was psychedelics. I mean, I discovered, uh, or first experienced LSD around 1970. Um, and nothing in my education or background had prepared me for this revelation of whole realms of consciousness that I just didn't know about before. Um, and that was a kind of life-changing experience for me. It was like a rite of passage into a new realm of consciousness. And that made me interested in exploring consciousness itself uh, without drugs and through meditation. And around 1971, I took up transcendental meditation um, and yoga. And then um, I was getting increasingly disenchanted with the reductionist science that I was surrounded by in Cambridge. And when an opportunity came up to get a job in India in an agricultural institute, an international, a high-powered international institute, using my skills as a plant scientist, doing something useful, working for poor farmers to breed and uh, improve crops, better crops. Um, I jumped at the chance to go and live in India. So I spent seven years in India and started off by going to temples, ashrams, gurus, discourses, took up different kinds of meditation. Then I had a Sufi teacher. I was in Hyderabad, which had quite a number of Sufis. And I did Sufi meditation. Uh, and then, to my surprise, I found myself drawn back to a Christian path. And in my 30s, I was confirmed in the Church of South India, which is the Anglican Church in India. I then discovered a very remarkable... A Christian teacher called Father Bede Griffiths, a Benedictine monk who lived in an ashram in South India wearing orange robes, and it was a very Indian ashram. Um, and in fact, I went to live there for a couple of years. I wrote my book, A New Science of Life, in Father Bede's ashram. Hmm. And Father Bede had a way of integrating, he gave discourses on the Upanishads, on the Bhagavad Gita, and in the ashram, we meditated an hour morning and an hour in the evening. We did yoga. Um, uh, we chanted the Gayatri mantra. It was a, a real integration of East and West. And that, for me, was the, uh, the perfect teacher and the perfect place to be. Uh, so now um, I'm very open to um, practices from different religious and spiritual traditions. I myself have as my core practice... Uh, uh, Christianity in the form of Anglican uh, Christianity. I go to church on Sundays. I pray every day. Um, I fast during Lent. Um, you know, I, I practice a form of Christian meditation. Um, so this, for me, is the, is the path that works best um, because it integrates my own tradition and ancestral line uh, with on morphic resonance principles, you know, traditional habits and family and ancestry are rather important. And so being in harmony with my ancestral line, um, and yet open to inputs from other traditions, Hindu, Buddhist, um, shamanic, Sufi. Um, and, and luckily the Anglican church is a very open, tolerant, uh, inclusive church. So I don't actually have problems with dogmatic priests or dogmatic um, uh, fundamentalists. I mean, 
my problem with dogmatists and fundamentalists happened not in the realm of religion, but in the realm of science, where I always meeting dogmatic scientific fundamentalists. And this, um, the culmination of this journey really is in, in my recent book, which is my most recent book, which is this, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, which is about seven different spiritual practices that have been studied scientifically. Um, one of them is learning from animals, which we've discussed already to some degree. Another is sports, because many sports uh, uh, provide altered states of consciousness. I think it's the main reason people are so interested in sports, even though they're not normally thought of as spiritual. Mm. Another is prayer. Another is fasting. Another is spiritual openings through psychedelics. Um, and uh, so another is uh, holy days and festivals. So all of these have measurable effects on our physiology, well-being, etc. And so in this book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, um, uh, what I'm trying to do is bring together the scientific side of my, um, myself and the spiritual side. Um, and uh, what I'm showing in this book is that you can do these spiritual practices if you're non-religious, you don't have to be religious to do them. And lots of people are spiritual but not religious. And all these practices can work for people who are spiritual but not religious, or even people who think of themselves as agnostic or atheist. Some of these practices can work very well. And in fact, a lot of atheists now meditate. So um, um, the situation is very different to the way it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago, because now the value of spiritual practices is scientifically proved. And even many atheists like Sam Harris accept that there are great benefits from doing these practices. So anyway, this book is for people who are interested in spiritual practices, uh, whether they're religious or not religious. I think of myself as spiritual and religious. Some people think of themselves as spiritual but not religious. And some people think of themselves, I don't know how many people think of themselves as religious but not spiritual. Uh, <laughs> I suppose there might be some, uh, but on, on the whole, uh, spirituality is part of all religion, and all religions have their own combinations of spiritual practices. How cool is that? You know, it's really, this book's to me, I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like an integration of a lot of your work put to, into practical use, sort of a, a boots on the ground you know, do this and see what you experience and there will be some sort of transformation or awakening. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And at the end of each chapter, I suggest two simple practices that people can do, you know, to, uh, to try it out for themselves. Um, so, uh, yes, it's very much, try, it's about experience. It's about, this is not about dogma, belief. It's about experience. And I myself think that all religions primarily start from mystical experience. I mean, the Buddha didn't become enlightened by doing a PhD. Um, you know, he became enlightened through spending years sitting under trees meditating. Jesus didn't realize his direct link with God the Father by going to a seminary. He had, at the moment of his baptism, a kind of near-death experience through baptism, near-induced through drowning, um, a kind of near-death rite of passage. He had this revelatory experience that changed his life and, and formed the basis of his public ministry thereafter. These things um, are, are what religions are primarily about. Um, 
I think it's a mistake to see them as primarily being about dogmas or beliefs. They're primarily about experiences. And that's obviously true even for literal fundamentalist Christians. I mean, the actual experience they're going for is not being dogmatic. It's being in, say, gospel churches where there's sort of incredible music and you're swept along with this sort of sense of being together and flowing with this music. And, and um, you know, the, the what's in it for people is the experience um, and uh, different kinds of experience in different religious practices. But um, it's primarily about experience. Yeah, I mean, let's think about this. So, Right now, what I'm hearing is that uh, you've got the new book out. You've got um, the studies that you're working on. Um, is there anything else that's, that's lighting you up right now that makes you feel alive, that's, that's exciting you the same way you had that paradigm-shifting revelation? Well, this period of lockdown has been a tremendous blessing for me. Um, and it hasn't been for some people, but I have to say that I've, I've had a fantastic period of lockdown because... Being grounded at home has meant I had so much more time. I haven't had to travel or go anywhere, or, or and 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 so I've I've gone into a kind of intense scientific research phase. I've been writing scientific papers for peer-reviewed journals, analysing results from experiments that have piled up over the last few years. Um, so I'm in kind of a super intense scientific mode at the moment. Um, and the, the, so what's lighting me up really is this research and the possibilities for research. One of them is exactly the one that we've talked about, the telephone telepathy research and the possibility of uh, people training themselves to get better at it, which would move this whole field to a, a new level. Um, another is the, um, uh, I'm a patron of something called the British Pilgrimage Trust. I helped set it up. and. What we're doing is reopening the ancient footpath pilgrimage routes in Britain to the ancient holy places, which include stone circles and megaliths and holy wells, also medieval churches, cathedrals, chapels and shrines. And um, here in Britain, we have a whole network of public footpaths that go across private land. This is a traditional system here. So you can walk anywhere in Britain uh, without having to go on roads. And um, this, um, this is taking off in a big way. The revival of pilgrimage in Europe is a huge thing now. The most famous one is to Santiago to Compostela in Spain. Yeah. But here in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, there's an enormous revival of pilgrimage. And I'm very excited by that because um, I, I think it's a wonderful way for people who are on a spiritual journey to literally go on a spiritual journey. Most of the people who go to Santiago or who go on these British pilgrimages are not regular devout Roman Catholics or Anglicans. Um, most of them are people who are spiritual but not religious or even atheists or agnostics or people who feel a call to a spiritual journey. And um, so I think that this is a, a you know, so it's a physical expression of the fact that many people are trying to move beyond the materialist, this rather nihilistic, materialist, depressing worldview. The universe is nothing but unconscious matter, purposeless. Uh, um, in our minds are nothing but the activity of our brains. We're nothing but uh, computers and so on. Um, that is depressing. I think 
this is a very depressing worldview, but I, I think the pilgrimage is one way. I do one every year with my teenage godson. We go walk for a day uh, to one of the great medieval cathedrals in England. Uh, this year we had to do a more local pilgrimage um, um, because, because of lockdown. Um, in America, um, I think the, the primary pilgrimage destinations are probably going to have to be natural places, you know, like national parks. These are basically sacred groves. You change the frame and you see that actually John Muir and his colleagues who set up the national parks in the US saw this as a kind of spiritual thing, not just somewhere to go with your RV and, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of do a bit of jogging, okay. uh, but places where um, there was a kind of connection with the natural world and a kind of spiritual inspiration. That was his inspiration for setting up the national parks movement. Hmm. Um, and I think for many people in the US, the national parks are the equivalent of the ancient world. They had these sacred groves, which were places where you communicate with the spirits of nature. Um, and of course, people believe God worked through those spirits. And it was a a kind of divine inspiration that could come through these places. And I think that's the probably the best focus for pilgrimage in the American context to natural places, sacred groves, whether they're local or whether they're the big national parks. Anyway, for me, this revival of pilgrimage is one of the most exciting things happening at the moment uh, because it shows a change in our culture as people actually put... Put walk, actually walk to these places and connecting with the earth through walking. Much more eco-friendly, of course, than flying to the other side of the world and, and then taking um, transport to get to a pilgrimage. We can all do pilgrimages near where we are, find local sacred places and walk to them. And it's a process of rediscovering our rooting in the earth. And that, I think, is very important for all of us, and especially uh, as we enter this post-COVID phase where we can learn to live more locally and be more ecologically sustainable in the way we lead our lives. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, Professor, that's uh, very exciting to hear about. Uh, so is your uh, experiments and your research. We certainly hope to be an aid in these new experiments that you have and using our platform to help boost that. Um, can you uh, repeat again for those new viewers that are joining us now, where's the best place to find your work and to buy your new books, etc.? Well, my website, sheldrake.org, has a great deal of information on it um, and links to my podcast series. I've got several podcast series. I also have a YouTube channel uh, where there's, again, many talks by me are there and, and it, dialogues uh, and interviews. Um, my books are all available on Amazon.com. Um, the most recent one is Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Um, the new edition of The Science Delusion is only available in uh, Britain, but can be purchased through Amazon.co.uk. Um, and then there's a whole, uh, a whole lot of other books, uh, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, about my research with animals, the sense of being stared at, and other aspects of the extended mind about my research on telepathy, human telepathy, the feeling of being stared at, and premonitions. Um, so for anyone who's interested, there's a lot more of material out there uh, they can follow up with. The best starting point would be my own website, 
Sheldrake, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org, O-R-G. Professor, it has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you a little bit better on this broadcast, and I hope it's just the first of many conversations we can have. Timothy, thank you so much for joining me as co-host for this episode of Euphemet Night Drift. For more content like this, we want to thank Evolve and Ascend for being such a great platform for this conversation. Please check out euphemet.com for more. That's E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. This conversation in its entirety will be available as a podcast in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everyone. Much love and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. Thank you again to our guest, Rupert Sheldrake, and our co-host, Tim Rothschild. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Thank you to Jennifer Sodini and Evolve and Ascend for hosting this live conversation. To take part in the experiments Rupert mentions, find links in the show notes and let us know if you're taking part. To be a part of our next live Zoom interview, join us on Patreon. It's $5 per month and includes access to Euphemet, the original series, these live Zoom interviews, and much more. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, our short film series with Carl Pfeiffer, merch and links to our social media, visit euphemet.com. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up. Follow Euphemet on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.